Hi, I'm Tim Lovejoy, and this is my award-winning podcast, The Lovejoy Hour. Coming up in the next few weeks, music industry boss Alan McGee, who famously signed Oasis. But I knew they were good, and I, but I didn't know they were superstars when I signed it. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I just thought they're another one of they, these good bands that I bump into. I find out about the adult entertainment industry from Kieran Lee, who's one of the biggest porn stars in the world. Excuse the pun. I just look at the director and he'll just give me a nod and it's basically countdown. Three, two, one. And on the weekends, I release my football podcast, The Eight is a Dan of Football. He looked at me again and he said, every time the ball comes in the box, son, you go to bloody pieces. <laughs> the Lovejoy Hour, available in all the usual podcast places and some unusual ones too. Hello and welcome to the Talk Derby to Me podcast. I'm Blake Fellows. Luke Sutton for you today. Um, former Derbyshire captain, former Lancashire captain. Uh, he's now a sports agent, a cricket agent, one of the first ever cricket agents. And the first person he ever had on his books was, oh, Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy Anderson, who again this week is still proving at 38 years old that he's the best in the world. Um, the best England bowler of all time. Um, so a really interesting story about that side of it. He's just written a book, The Life of a Sports Agent. So we'll talk about that. We'll also talk about his battles with addiction um, and some of the traumatic experiences he's been through, particularly at his, um, his spell at Derbyshire, during his first spell at Derbyshire, um, which which led to him leaving the club and, and him spending some time in rehab for addiction. So a really interesting listen. Before we get into that, just want to say, as ever... As ever, thank you to Connect Red Telecommunications. They're on our social media. If you need a phone, an iPad, anything like that, go and check them out. They're a local company based in Derby, Burton, Cannock, Stafford. They support us, run by a massive, massive Derby fan, Dan Atwell. Check them out. SMJ Brady Construction, um, run by Fran Brady, who's local to me here in, uh, in Chadderston in Derby. They're on our Facebook, so go on our Facebook and follow that through to them. And Elite Football Development or a coaching company run by my very good mates, Ben Osborne and Jack Andrews. Again, just go and drop them a follow. That's all I ask. You don't have to go and buy anything off them. Just go and support them and follow them. And that's enough for me. Right, here we go. Former Derbyshire captain, turned sports agent. Here's Luke Sutton. So Luke Sutton, welcome on Talk Derby to me. Uh, how are you at the minute? How is how's life? Really good, thank you. Yeah, um, the ups and downs of COVID, but generally pretty good. So thank you for having me on. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Um, I get a bit fanboy when we have ex-Derbyshire players on because I'm a, a massive Derbyshire fan. So I end up being, oh, it's such a pleasure because I grew up watching you all that. So if I get a bit like that, I do apologise. <laughs> I apologise in advance. <laughs> <laughs> the your new book, is it out now? It's out now, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about it and, and why you decided to write it? Yeah, it's called The Life of a Sports Agent. Um, so I've been working as a sports agent for nearly 10 years now. And um, and I've just recently, I've, I wrote my first book last year, um, which was more about my own backstory and my own, uh, you know, uh, difficulties and, and, and I guess the way I worked my way through them. 
and I've, I really enjoyed writing. So when the opportunity came up to write a book around being a sports agent um, in lockdown, the, the first lockdown back in March, I, I, I jumped at it really. And I, and I think it was the right time for me to do it in that I, I think I, I've got a good wealth of experience with being a sports agent and I've worked in a number of different sports. Uh, and I think there's just this a lot of mystery surrounding what agents do. And, and more often than not, it's kind of spun in a negative way. And, uh, and I just kind of wanted to, to break that down a little bit and give people real insight into what the job involves, the good, the bad and everything in between. Um, and I, I really enjoyed write, writing it. So I hope, I hope people enjoy reading it. You mentioned that obviously you wrote another book previously. Did you find the process of writing a book like a therapeutic process or do you enjoy the process of, of writing is that why you've gone back to write a, a second yeah I do I, I you know that I'd never written a book obviously prior to last year and uh, I'd never really written anything of of that you know sort of 50,000 words type of thing um, but the first book was very therapeutic because it was you know it was kind of being brutally honest about my backstory and, and there was um, you know my battles with alcohol and mental health and and how that was all wrapped into to one and and there was a, a very very much a therapeutic element to writing it but I did discover that I do really enjoy writing I enjoy putting things together I enjoy I just really enjoy it and I find it quite calming and um, so yeah when I when when I, there was this possibility of writing the second book, I was, I was like, yeah, I'd love to. Uh, and I think there might be, you know, more books um, along uh, coming at, at some point. So it's definitely something that in my 40s I've discovered and fallen in love with. I'm the same because obviously I, I, I'm doing journalism, but I've, I've suffered some of the issues you mentioned there. I suffer with my mental health at times and, and addiction and I've done in the past. And writing, I seem to get lost in it sometimes, whereas I find it very difficult to start. Well, then when, once I've started, I'm just like in a, in a different world. And it's like, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, I find for myself that I can almost feel whether I'm able to write or not. It's a really strange thing. I, I, I was trying to describe it to my fiance, but it's like, if I can see the chapter, like in my head, I can almost like play it out in my head, then I, I can write it pretty quickly. I, I get in a flow and I get completely lost in it. And then if other times I just can't see it, then there's no point trying. I'm, it's like I'm back at school trying to force something. And um, yeah, I just find that sometimes you're in the zone and it really flows. And just like you said, you get lost in it. And other times you just need a bit of a break and step away and then come back to it another time. Have you found from, from your first book, that people have, have reached out to you haven't read it and has it helped people yeah I think so I, I you know they I've had a really amazing response to it and and lots and lots of people have reached out to me from within professional sport and 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 from other walks of life and I, and that was really my intention of it you know my story is one which is you know wrapped into professional sport but I, I felt that it it is identifiable for people of all walks of life who are suffering with you know battling with addiction or mental health challenges um and so yeah I, I I was really nervous about you know putting my story out there and being honest about it all you know truly honest for the first time so um when you get that kind of good feedback and response from people finding it useful for themselves that, that kind of makes it all worthwhile the this is a question because like you you touched on the life of a sports agent I wouldn't have a clue I mean I've been involved in in the outskirts of sport with my job and obviously going to watch but 
it's one area it's a bit mysterious really could you yeah sum up the average day as a sports agent or is it impossible to have an average day <laughs> it is impossible to have an average day you know some some days uh you know go from five o'clock in the morning till midnight um and then other days you know you get to watch some great sport and kind of um relax a little bit more it, it, it's it's full on though um i do think there's a lot of mystery around agents and and i think it's you know i was trying to weigh up you know why is that the case and i think you know, the industry has been born out of, you know, years ago where agents came along and, and maybe were perceived as being kind of money grabbing, you know, sort of people who were an unnecessary evil within the game and whatever sport it was. But, you know, my experience of sports agency is not like that. You know, it's, it's, it, the, the, the industry is, is growing all the time. There's, you know, when I first started, there was four cricket agents. There's now 50. Um, you know, in, in rugby, the demand for agents in football, the demand for agents is, is huge. So, you know, people who, you know, an, uh, are kind of have this perception that they're an unnecessary evil would have to ask the question, why are they becoming more agents and why are they being used more? And, and the, re the reason is because there's a demand. The sports industry needs agents to move people around and help provide the kind of fluidity within the market and, and be the sort of middlemen who can take the blame for things at times when no one else wants to fall out, whether club and player or player and sponsor or whatever it might be. And so the role of the agent has, has increased, yet the knowledge of what an agent does hasn't increased alongside it. We're still stuck in the ages of saying, oh, that you know, brown paper bags and, you know, and taking bungs and things like that. And it, it just, that's not what the world is now. Um, and, you know, your day can vary from, speaking to a player's family, speaking to a player, sponsors, media, accountants, you know, financial advisors, you know, it goes round and round and round. And you, you, you feel like you're, you're kind of in the middle of all sorts of different dynamics that go on for a, for a professional sports person. And as they become more and more high profile, those dynamics become more and more intense. The, the increase in, in agency in cricket and rugby, because I'm a big football fan and, and, like you say, the common um, belief about, about agents is, oh, agents kind of ruined the game and there wasn't any money in it. But I do another podcast with um, Tim Lovejoy, who was on Soccer AM, and yeah. it's about how football's changed. And he's always got that. And I kind of, I think people look back with rose-tinted glasses on a lot of things, and it was always better when they never got paid out and they were on muddy pitches. But can you, do you think cricket and rugby will change because of having agents and players having a little bit more power to maybe move? Because that's something in cricket that they've not always really had, is it? They, they, the ability to be able to go from county to county is yeah. just really able to. Yeah, it, it's so, you know, I would, if I was speaking to Tim, I would, I would disagree with what you're saying because what the implication is that the agents are making it happen. Whereas that's, that's not true. The agents are facilitating something that people want to happen, that clubs want to happen, players want it. The, the agents aren't the kind of commander in chief of the sports industry going, right guys, this is what we're going to do next. You know, it doesn't happen. Um, you know, players are getting paid more because clubs are getting paid more from higher broadcasting rights because sports still very, very valuable. And, um, you know, so as a result, wages have gone up and transfer fees have gone up. But that's not because agents have driven them up. That's because it's the market that decides it. You know, if, if um, you know, Wayne Rooney comes on the market back in his heyday, he's got every club in the world going for him. It becomes who bids the highest price it's like buying a house it's, it doesn't depend on you know the, uh, the the agent who's driving up the price so um 
yeah i i think that that that's it's just how the games are developing i think particularly with cricket um yeah there is there is more player movement now um and particularly there's more player movement from clubs towards test match grounds which is which is an interesting dynamic because sometimes players are moving to test match grounds even if that test match ground aren't actually playing that well at that time um and i think there is a, there is becoming a bigger financial gulf between those clubs and other clubs and unfortunately but i think the big change in cricket really is these t20 leagues that are that are up and running around the world whether you know obviously the ipl is the most high profile but you know there's the big bash pakistan super league bangladesh premier league there's a t10 competition there's one in sri lanka going on at the moment um you know there's there's more and more popping up all over the place and that's changed the landscape for cricketers where they used to just play county cricket now you know they could play for three or four different teams during a year with see this is again something i don't fully understand as a derbyshire member like with football i i get if derbyshire derby at the minute have got three or four good 18 year olds and then if someone came in at chelsea or someone went right we'll give you 8 million he's brilliant and i have it but derbyshire seem to if a youngster comes through at derbyshire and they get to a certain level then mm. they can't get handpicked by the big test ground counties which happens quite often What's that process? Will there be any fee involved, or is it just if it just got to wait for the contract to be over? Or because I genuinely yeah. don't want to go on that side, yeah. No, no, not it's a fair question. No, they, their contracts just come to an end, so they become available, and then of course, once they're available, you know that the, the, those players are liable for bigger clubs to tap them up and say, you know, come and play for us, and 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 there's not a lot, you know, a club like Derbyshire can do in that place. I mean, I I would always encourage. No, there is a there is a slightly difference on that. If the player's been an academy player that's been brought up at that club, I think there is a small payment that goes. I, don't, I need to double check that, but I, I think there is, and the same exists in rugby and football. Um, but the transfer fees are when players are locked into contracts. So effectively, the transfer fee is buying that player out of the contract. So, you know, if if Derbyshire have a very talented youngster, I'd, get, I'd try and get them on a very long contract as fast as you can. But clubs are reluctant to do that because they don't want to financially commit themselves to kind of that sort of length of contracts. They tend to keep it, you know, to maybe three years, but that will give opportunities for bigger clubs to nip in there at some point when the contract's running out and and, and try and poach the player across. Yeah, that makes sense then, because Dobbs has not maybe got the financial clout of other counties. You can't say, oh, Matt Critchley, we'll put you on a five-year deal and then if someone comes in in three years, yeah. So it, yeah, yeah, it doesn't make sense, yeah. Um, <sighs> Yeah, it's free. Yeah, um, your time at Derbyshire then was it two thousand mm. you first signed? Yes, two thousand. Yeah. Wow. So I was about <laughs> eight eight years old then. Stood. <laughs> God, I <laughs> feel old now. Watching Kevin Dean steaming in. <laughs> <laughs> what are your first your first memories of, of coming to Derbyshire then? Um, yeah, I mean, I remember that winter because I'd been. I was at Somerset originally, and then Colin Wells was the second team coach at Somerset, and then he moved to be head coach at Derbyshire and said, "Listen, why don't you come up? Um, you know, to to Derbyshire. I think you've you've got a path towards the first team faster than you do at Somerset." And um, I came up that winter, and I, I don't. I think I don't think I'd ever played at Derby before up to that point I mean I might have I, I played against Derbyshire obviously but not at the, at the county ground and uh, it is very different looking to what it looks like now you know with all the development it was pretty barren back in that time that day and uh, and I remember it was freezing cold and we all went off to David Lloyd to do like some sort of boxer size type class and um, 
you know, Dominic Cork was kind of the most dominant figure by mile. And, um, you know, I was got on really well with Corky and, and uh, I really enjoyed him. And he was just, you know, very dominant within that pack of players. And it was just a whole new world to me, really, you know, moving away from my home club and having to settle. I shared a house with other lads and, you know, how quickly could I settle in and get into the, you know, get an opportunity to the first team. And, you know, I was I was fortunate that that opportunity came quite soon as a batsman originally and then eventually as the wicketkeeper batsman. Um, but it was I, I grew up at Derbyshire in many ways as a cricketer and a, and a person. You know, I, I really kind of became a first-class cricketer at Derbyshire. Was it a difficult decision to make to move away at that age to come up to Derbyshire? Because um, when you speak to, we've had quite a few of the, the cricketers, like um, Cork has been on, uh, Kevin Dean and a few others. It's not necessarily the most attractive prospect, especially at that time, like you say, before the development, to come and play for Derbyshire. They're not the most attractive county, but if you're second-team cricketer, obviously it's a, it's a good opportunity, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, it wasn't a difficult decision for me, actually, because I just, I just wanted to play. You know, I just wanted to play. I, I felt like... I felt like the you know the clock was ticking down, so you know I've got to get playing first team cricket. I can't be sat in the second team forever, just kind of hoping my opportunity will come along. And um, at Somerset, there was a very good wicketkeeper ahead of me, Rob Turner, who was still quite young, and you know the chances of me getting in ahead of him were, were pretty slim. I would need something pretty drastic to happen, and he was he never got injured. He was very consistent. Um, so for me, the opportunity to go to a club, regardless of you know the setup where it was but have a better chance of playing first team cricket I just snapped your hand off and so it wasn't a difficult decision for me I was just like no I'm going to do it and I've just got to get into the first team as fast as I can. How long was it uh, from arriving at Derbyshire to to getting in and uh, making your mark as a as a first uh, first class player then did it take a while for you to to get in and break in or? Um, I did play that season that's a that's a good question Um, I definitely did play that season um, I can't remember how well I did that season in the first year. I think, I think in the first year I, I played and I, I got into the one day side and, and, and had a couple of decent performances in there. And I was playing as a batsman um, and I just, yeah, I managed to sort of establish myself, I guess, 2001, 2002 as a batsman in some ways. And then really 2003 was my breakthrough year as a wicketkeeper and batsman. That was the year Corky kind of said, okay, you're going to be wicketkeeper and ahead of Carl Cricken. And, you know, that's when I, I stepped up. And I, I think that year I scored 200s in the first two games and I kind of got going. And yeah, that was when I, I really broke through. You later got the captaincy after Corky left. Um, was, was, were, you lined up pre, was, were you lined up before Corky went to, to take over or did you get any advice from him or was it a decision made after Corky had gone? It was a decision made after he went because I, I think it was it was a little bit... Un, un, yeah. Sorry, say that again. I think Michael DiVenuto had it for a little bit, didn't he? And then he, did he go back to Australia? Um, that might be wrong. I'm doing it from memory. No, <laughs> not making I th- yeah, I think, I think Michael sort of stepped in a couple of times, but I don't think he was, a, he was officially club captain. Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I think I was just... I guess I was lined up for it maybe in people's thoughts that they thought that I was a future captain, but, um, you know, Corky's departure was, was quite quick, um, when he went to Lancashire. So, you know, there was no kind of pre-warning or, you know, this is going to happen in six months time. And, um, 
you know, in hindsight, looking back, it, the, the captaincy was, I loved it. I, I absolutely loved being captain. And, um, but I was quite young still as a cricketer. You know, 2003 was my breakthrough year where I really kind of established myself. And then I was club captain in 2004. You know, it's, it's quite a quick turnaround. Some guys, you know, might have three, three or four years establishing themselves in the side. But I, just, I had a season. Um, but it was the making of me, really. And I, I was really grateful for the opportunity. Did you have to change your game as a captain? Does it affect how you think about things? And, and or, is it, or is it just you, you play cricket still, but you've just got other stuff at the back of your mind? Yeah, it didn't change my approach. I just, I was same cricketer, just, you know, trying to do what I, I could do best. I think, um, you know, I, as a captain, you, your your mindset will be that, it, you, you know, you, you're not just concentrating on yourself. You need to you need to have a broader look at the game and the team and what's right for the team and how's everyone getting on. And, and that's the role of the captain. Um, but my actual game itself didn't didn't change in essence. You, you left in 2006 for or started at Lancashire in 2006. What what was the, the reason then behind leaving Derbyshire for the first the first time? Yeah, I, I um, you know, 2000 and uh, so I'd left at the end of 2005 season, I think. Uh, I think that's right. Um, I, can't, I can't quite remember yeah, the that'd year. That'd be right. I mean, you would have played for Lancashire in the Yeah, 2006. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, 2000 and at the end of 2004 was, was when I, had, um, you know, had uh, unfortunately this um, car accident happened to my fiance and, and she died. And, um, uh, uh, you know, it was it was an extremely tough time for me. So 2005 was very much about kind of continuing and rebuilding my life and my career after that, that huge shock. Um, and yeah, then my contract ended at the end of 2005. And I think I needed, I needed time away from Derby, to be perfectly honest. I needed a fresh start, fresh kind of in lots of different ways. And and the opportunity with Lancashire came about and, um, you know, I was really, really keen to take it up and, and kind of start afresh, you know, and I, I probably needed to kick on as a cricketer as well, I think, at that time. And no, no question, Lancashire was was a big challenge in that way. I, I remember getting to the dressing room in, uh, yeah, at the end of 2005 and 2006 and kind of looking around and, you know, it was Freddie Flintoff, Glenn Chappell, Stuart Law, Murley. Malloy and I just was like these guys are some serious players and I'm I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to step up and 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 it was really good development for me. So 2004 and five and, and that difficult period was that we mentioned some of the issues that you mentioned in your first book was that the start of of some of that for you? The, the... Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I th- I, I think I think I had always. I think I I'd always been bumbling along like a sort of wait. It was waiting to happen for me. My my relationship with alcohol was poor before that. Um, you know, my my mental health was fragile before that. I think that when that happened, um, it just it just accelerated everything. I think I would have got into the trouble I got to eventually, one way or the other. I just think what happened in two thousand four kind of sped things up, and you know, it made it. It brought things to a head faster. Cricket at that time, and I've listened to a podcast with um, Freddie Flintoff before, and he mentioned when he was, I think he was about 16, he went with the second team for the first time, the second 11, mm. and he went right to the back and then it was just crates of beer and, and stuff like that on the way. Just mm. the, the kind of drinking culture at that time in cricket, was that maybe part of it as well? Was there a, a bit of a culture of that kind of thing? Yeah, there was definitely a culture of that. I mean, I remember going on my first second team game uh, with Somerset and it was just, you know, 
you know, for, we arrived at the hotel and it was like, right, let's get changed. We're going out. And, um, you know, we went out of the town and had a big night and, you know, and then rocked up the next day to play against, uh, I think playing, played against Yorkshire. And um, that's just the way it was. There was no, you didn't ask any questions. You just kind of cracked on. It was, it was the drinking culture and of where it is. I mean, the game's changed a lot now and um, you know, that doesn't, doesn't exist, but um, yeah, I mean, there does exist to some extent, but no, no way what it used to be where it was this, you know, no, no questions asked, just straight into a drinking culture. Do you feel like it ever affected your game? I mean, that's, it's a million dollar question, isn't it? I, I think, you know, there was times maybe when I didn't, I didn't play as well as I could have done because I'd probably had a big night the night before or two nights before. And, you know, maybe I could have been a bit sharper that day. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think what, what it did for me more than anything was it just burnt me out. You know, my lifestyle on the pitch and off the pitch, I was a very hard worker on the pitch and I was a very hard worker off the pitch, you know, in, in, in going out. So I think it just, I was burning the candle at both ends, you know, and, and when I ended up, you know, going to the Priory, uh, when I was 2011, end of 2011, I was just completely smashed up. You know, I was just completely burnt out. And I think that was the result of living the way I lived. You know, it just wasn't manageable. The Priory, and I've spoken to quite a few people that have had um, similar addictions and things like that. You have to kind of realise what's happened. And because a lot of it's denial, isn't it? And, and stuff, and I've been through it and you kind of think, oh, I can deal with this, I can cope with this, it's sound, it's all brilliant. but. Was it your decision where you have to go to a point and go, oh, this, this is too much now, I need to need to sort myself out a little bit? No, I'd love to give myself that credit, but I, I didn't actually. I was kind of rescued, really. I, I just, you know, I was in a really bad way in the last kind of 10 days before I went into the Priory and, and I was, you know, pretty much drinking nonstop. And I just didn't, um, you know, I just didn't, I just lost all control, basically. And I was falling apart and that, and, and some, a group of friends got really concerned and they, they called my parents and then, you know, arranged for an appointment for me at the Priory. And that was really the beginning of the process of me going in there. But I didn't, I didn't put my hand up and go, you know, I need help. I knew something was desperately wrong. I just didn't know what it was. I didn't even really think drinking was a problem. I thought, I thought, if you felt the way I did, you would drink the way I did. That's, that's how I had it in my head. I, I had the, you know, had it the wrong way around. Um, and yeah, I had a massive amount of denial, but I do think that when I went into the Priory that I had this moment where I was like, and I remember having this phrase in my head, you know, the game is up. And, and what I meant by that was, it's like, I can stop pretending. I can stop pretending that everything's all right when it's really not all right. And, um, and, I, you know, there was still a long way to go in my time in the prior. And the first week, I still thought I was better than everyone. I still thought, you know, I needed to get back out into the world because I was really important. And it was really until I got into the second week of being there where I was like, ah, OK, I might be the problem here. And, and I've got a lot of, lot of work to do on myself. And, and then, you know, that real acceptance of where I got to. And really, that was the start of me being able to rebuild. This is probably a selfish question from my part. It's just something I'm intrigued about. How how tough did you find it to to completely give up the alcohol and stuff like that? Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, I don't even. I'm nearly nine years sober now. I oh, sorry. No, I'm. I need to do my maths. Hang on. Da, 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 to, yeah, I am over nine years sober. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not nearly over nine years sober. Um, 
and um yeah i don't even think about it now i don't even it doesn't even come into my thinking i don't kind of I don't worry about it. I don't like walk in a pub and go, oh my God, I'm going to have a drink. I don't, it doesn't even, I'm completely neutral to it. I'm, I'm not anti it, you know, for other people, it's great. I, you know, it works really well. But for me, it just doesn't work well. I just become a person I don't want to be basically. And so, uh, and I have this really healthy relationship with it. Now, I think at the start, the challenge for me, it wasn't actually the, I don't, know if this is going to make sense it wasn't actually the drinking of it it was the wanting escape so that's what made me drink it was like i i just don't want to be in my head i just i want to drink myself to calmness you know and like and so the fact that it was alcohol that helped me do that was just it was the the product that allowed me to get out of my head and so really what I found really hard early on wasn't, it wasn't me thinking, oh, I'd love a drink type of thing. It was me thinking, basically, I, I just want to escape from my head and I want to run away and I don't want to deal with reality. And, and what do I do now that I can't drink? It, you know, it was about having to face reality of where life was. And I found that really, really tough. And that was something which just over time and with a lot of work, you know, I just kind of worked out how to change my attitudes and my um, you know, way I approach life and dealt with pressure and stress and things like that. So now to get to a point where, you know, all of those things are more, it's not like, you know, life is life, isn't it? Some things go well and some things don't go well. Um, but I don't have that propulsion now to want to escape. And, and I think that's why, you know, I don't need to drink anymore. And coming out of coming out of the priory in 2011 that was the year you returned to Derbyshire that, that's right no I, no I was I did the season at Derbyshire and then I went into the priory oh okay so no, I apologize it's about, yeah. was cricket was cricket important in getting, no. getting back to normal or did you not was it keep like kind of two separate things yeah I mean for me that last year at Derbyshire I you know I, I played okay and I was captain and I did my best but personally, I was just falling apart. You know, I was hanging in there by a thread. I was, you know, my mental health was shot. I was pretending that everything was okay. I needed to look strong because I was captain. My drinking was off the charts. And, and I was just hanging in there, really. And, you know, by the time then at the end of the season, I went into the Priory and I came out kind of November time. You know, I, that was the end of my career. I didn't. I had two years left on my contract, but that was the end of my career. And um, and and actually, I'm quite grateful for that because I, I, you know, another two years. I was already 35. I, you know, I wasn't getting any better, and I needed a fresh change to help me rebuild my life. I don't know genuinely how I would have got on with staying sober if I if I'd gone back to cricket. It would just been the same routine for me, the same way. I needed to break away from it and, and try something completely different. Do you feel there's enough support for, for sportsmen and, and cricketers with mental health? I mean, I know it's a very macho industry and it's a bit of a cliche to say, oh, it's all men and we all go, yeah, I'm sound and, 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 all, and all that. But mm. I'm quite good friends with Tony Palladino and we've had long conversations and he put quite a, a detailed mm. thread on the other yeah. day about his battles. Do you feel there could be any more done potentially just to, to help people that are suffering? I do think there's more that could be done. Definitely. I'm, I mean, Tony's a good friend of mine as well. And I, you know, I know, I know what you're talking about. I, I think more can be done. I think that the PCA, which is our players union do a decent job. Um, and, and are, but they're an overstretched organization who are trying to, 
you know, cover as much as they can. And I, I just say this, not just about cricket, actually, but just professional sport in general. I just, I always feel like that ultimately what matters is what goes on on the pitch. So it's like, you know, if you've got, you know, Derby County have got a striker who's banging in a goal every game, um, but he's drinking till four o'clock in the morning every night. You know, let's be honest, most of the attitude would be like, listen, yeah, but he's banging a goal in every game. As long as he scores and on a Saturday, that old saying, isn't it? As long as he yeah. scores on a Saturday. Yeah. As long as you turn up and perform, it's all good. And that's that that's professional sport. That's what we grew up in. It was like, listen, whatever you do is fine, but you need to perform. As long as you perform. So the the attitude is always what happens on the pitch is what matters, you know? And I just think that more should be done around that because you know, the professional sport, and it's it's a difficult territory, this, because people like will feel, well, you're you're privileged, you know, well-paid people. You shouldn't have anything to moan about. And I'm not at all, but there's too many, you know, also professional sports people are young people. You know, you're, you know, I, I was finished at 35 and that was pretty good. You know, like some guys will get to late 20s. So they're young people. And if in that time we just chew them up and spit them out, and go, well, you know, we got our pound of flesh next. What what are we leaving? You know, what are what's that? Where is that guy? And there are so many examples of professional sports people going to retirement and really struggle because they've lived this life where all that matters is performance on the pitch and everything else is fine. And suddenly they're in the normal world where behaving the way they were behaving is is not manageable, is not acceptable. There isn't a pitch to perform on anymore. And they're just left with that person. And, and, you know, they, they fall apart in many ways. And I, and I, that's where I feel like professional sport needs to do more. Clubs need to do more. Let's not lean on the PCA and the PFA and the RPA as much as we do. Actually, the clubs go, do you know what? We've got a duty of care of young people in our club that we need to keep a very close eye on. It's not just about performing on the pitch. That's, that's obviously a priority, but it's also about how they're getting on in life. And if, if I, if I've given an example, there's a lad who, you know, goes after training, goes to bookies every afternoon and he's, and he's at the bookies every day after training and, but he's playing well, he's training well and he's going to the bookies and no one bats an eyelid and, and that just drifts on. And suddenly this guy develops a massive gambling addiction. You know, what, what do we do in professional sport with that? Well, when it gets to that point, we'll go, oh, can someone help out now? And my point would be, it was there all along. Why did no one do anything at the start? And because ultimately, all that matters is what's happening on the pitch. That's incredible. I like, I really, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And it's especially prevalent when I spoke to, I spoke to a lot of ex-footballers who didn't quite make the grade and then they're told from eight years old to 16, oh, you're brilliant, you're brilliant. And then one day, no, thank you, you're not quite what we need. And then they go, well, what the, I'm going to do now. And then it's, yeah, so... Just to bring it full circle before before we end, how did you go from the end of your career and you wanted to do something different into being a sports agent then? Yeah, good question. I, I had the business itself was already, I set it up with a friend of mine uh, back in 2005 and it was already operating in sport in different ways. And then when I came to the end of my career, um, a teammate of mine, Lancashire, Jimmy Anderson, um, was looking for management and we we talked about me doing it I, I obviously came from a playing background but I had a business as well and you know we thought okay let's give it a shot and I, I think we initially started on a three-month trial basis to see how we, we got on and you know eight and a half years later or whatever we still we're still we were still managed you know still working together 
and that's how the management division just just grew from there really from jimmy and that opportunity and then you know i've gone on to manage lots of different cricketers and rugby players footballers boxers darts players all, all a real eclectic mix of sports people podcasters <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe we'll see do you know you're in <laughs> yeah, not any good ones, no. <laughs> How many players have you got now then on the books? Um, that's a good question. We we've just signed some young players, actually, three or four young players. So cricketers, we would have, I would guess, not guess, my I'd, without counting up specifically, about ten, I would say, something like that. Yeah. Oh, brilliant! And I always end with this question. I think you maybe answered some of it, but I always ask any regrets. So. Uh, along your career anything you'd maybe change that you, you look back on and think I'll probably have done that differently that is a, a brilliant question I have been asked it many times because sometimes it comes up as what would you tell a young your younger self yeah you know, what would you do you know and that which is often about how you would correct a regret or whatever so for me um and I don't want to say that sort of cliche of, like, I've got no no regrets in life but what, what I do feel is that what's happened to me up till now has all led to me being where I am in life now. And I've never truly been this happy and this kind of content and peaceful. And I know who I am. I know, you know, I know what type of person I want to be. And, and maybe I had to go through all of that crap to, to get to here. And so I can't regret it. I wish I hadn't done some of the things I'd done, you know, because it caused pain for people and you know including myself i wish i hadn't done that stuff but maybe it all happened had to happen for me to get here so you know i'll take it yeah anything that's worth having it's always a, a tough journey to get there isn't it yeah that's, definitely yeah well thank you very much for pleasure i've really enjoyed it and uh i'll stop messaging you now you'd have to get a restraining order <laughs> no it's been a pleasure thank you for having me on yeah thank you uh, catch up cool. soon thank you very much no worries speak soon